This is Morgan Michael, welcoming you to Kindsight 101, the podcast where you'll hear from world-renowned educational leaders about the mobilizing power of kindness, together by challenging our assumptions and venturing beyond the status quo in education, we can make a big impact, one small act at a time. Dr. Michelle Borba is a psychologist, educator, and the author of several books geared at promoting thriving and well-being in children. She blew my socks off during our interview with the number of strategies she offered, her charismatic way, and her overall sense of optimism when it comes to setting our students up for resilient success. Check out her books, Unselfie and Thrivers, anywhere that you get your books. She's a gem, and I hope that you feel as inspired by her as I did. Hey, and one more thing, if you're feeling stuck, frustrated, or feeling a little burnt out, or like you just can't quite reach your expansive goals, I want you to check out my new book, From Burnt Out to Fired Up, Reigniting Your Passion for Teaching, available on Amazon, Barnes & Noble, and just about anywhere you get your books. It's actionable, it's research-based, and it will transform your life and practice. Through my five hours framework, you'll learn to reflect, reframe, refocus your goals, reconnect with those around you, and reveal the truest expression of who you are as an educator and as an individual. Just search Morgan Michael from Burnt Out to Fired Up. That's Morgan Michael, M-O-R-G-A-N-E, from Burnt Out to Fired Up to reserve your very own copy today. You can do the book at your own pace or snag a bunch of copies for a staff room book club. The practices are meant to be shared. And if you're looking for inspiring lessons or daily inspirations for yourself, search Small Act Big Impact in Google for my website and for my Instagram pages. Hello, Dr. Michelle Borba. I'm so delighted to have you on Kindsight 101 today. Thank you for joining. Oh, I've been looking forward to this for so long. So thank you. Oh, so exciting. So where to even start? I mean, your work is so expansive and folks will have heard in the intro that I've pre-recorded all about the amazing work that you've done. I want to really talk about in light of this recent pandemic that just never seems to be ending. What do you find sort of surprising in terms of how the needs of educators right now, or maybe something that really stands out for you right now? Oh, I think the first thing is that educators are, uh, need to take care of themselves because we always worry about the resilience of kids. But in reality, if we take care of ourselves, we're going to be far better and more effective with our kids. And we don't do that. We put kids first because we're so good at that because we're in, we're so compassionate. So I think that's number one. Uh, number two, I think it's interesting that many educators are beginning to realize that the kids that they didn't think were going to be a pro- have problems are having the problems, mm-hmm. uh, particularly more uh, the affluent child. And I think first is because so many of them have been kind of bubble wrapped. But second of all, they haven't faced adversity. So that becomes a real big issue. Uh, And I think maybe that's the bottom line to us all. Thrivers are made, not born. It depends upon the kind of experiences they've had. Every child needs a protective factor. But let's not jump to conclusions as to who's going to be the struggler and who's not. We need to tune in and empathize and figure out where are they coming from and what happened to them so we can meet our teaching strategies right on when they walk in that school door. Wow. I love, love, love that. I think that this is, this is probably one of the most important skills right now around thriving, which is what your book is called thrivers. And it's, it's really about building that resiliency and 
as you said, we have these students who may have had so many wonderful experiences and, and be quite well off and really not have encountered a lot of adversity in their life. And I do think about that, especially in light of this pandemic or just some of the challenges at school that sometimes come up. Um, Yeah. yeah, So, so what are maybe some of, some of the top ways that you think as educators, as parents, that we can really tap into that thriving mentality, get those kids so that they have a firm foundation for resiliency? Well, I think number one is realize it's doable. That thriving is something that you can instill in kids. You're not born with it. And therefore means that we educators have tremendous opportunities. It's a different skill set than GPA. But we do know that the skills of thrivers, when I chose them, I wanted to be evidence-based that they were going to impact our kids' resilience and mental health because I was really worried one in five American kids was going to suffer from a mental health disorder and then came the pandemic. So it's only going to amplify it. But those same strengths that we're talking about, we now know also increase peak performance. So it's not either or, it's both that matters. And maybe the starting point is to realize if kids who do have protective buffers prior to this pandemic, they're going to be far more likely to be resilient. Well, what do we got going for us? We've already got SEL programs. We've already got second step. We've got so many things that we don't have to start another program. We just weave in what we're already doing because Resilience is not a worksheet and it's not another program. So relax. It's instead meeting the needs of the kids and going, what do they need? Mm. And it it may be just a little starter. I I suggest the first thing we all do is maybe send a little email to every parent saying, I care desperately about your kid. I don't know what's happened over the last months. If there's one little thing you'd like me to know to help me reach them, please let me know. I'll keep this anonymous and confidential. No, you're not going to get 100%. But parents love the fact that you care. And they really do need to help you know that, you know, grandma died of COVID or we lost our business or we've really been suffering or no, everything seems to be going well. That's a real wonderful way for you to be able to figure out how do I help this child? That gives me chills because I think there is something so simple about that. And yet it may not be when we're in the startup at the beginning of the year, it may not be the very first thing we think to do. We are sort of drowning in worksheets or, you know, forms and registration and all these things. And as parents ourselves, but also as educators, we've got a lot on our plates. And so that simple reach out just opens the door for those parents. I just love that. So when it comes to what you're noticing as a child psychologist, what children need the most right now, what would you say, what do you think is lacking? And then, and maybe one way that we could access that even just outside of that parent email, like, you know, like hands-on with the kids in front of us. Hands-on number one is don't overlook you yourself. Mm -hmm. Teachers make enormous differences and we forget that little commodity because we're so into that curriculum that we forget it's really relationships. My own best best model of that was Mrs. Fredrickson. She was my first grade teacher. And to this day, when I became a teacher, I wanted to morph right into her skin. She sat at the door every single day and greeted us with an H and an H. Do you want a hug or a handshake? Mm -hmm. And then she'd always tell us compliments, but it was never cute shoes. It was thanks for being so kind yesterday, or you worked so hard and you didn't give up yesterday, Michelle. 
her, her discipline was moral. It was an H and H question again. Was that helpful or hurtful? So what are you going to do to make it helpful? Well, 25 years later, we got into a reunion for first grade, nine kids showed up and all we talked about was H and H. We didn't remember all the lessons on the bulletin boards. We've remembered Mrs. Fredrickson. The first thing kids need is calmness. They need routines. They need expectations because when uncertainty rises, anxiety goes up. So number one is model that calmness, even though you're taking the deep breaths yourself. Is there one little thing you can routinely do? We know that their bandwidth is short. They know that their focusing is, is a little going to be a little shorter as well. Maybe there's soothing music when the kids walk into the classroom. Or maybe that's the first five minutes of a lonely syndrome has helped our entire society. Take two seconds and turn to the person on your left or your right and ask them how they're doing. But look them straight in the eye or, you know, the bridge of their nose, because they've also been spending uh, a year and a half looking down instead of up. Mm-hmm. And they're they're telling us that they're lonely because they haven't been practicing their social skills. So yes. we can weave that in. And it starts engagement 101. Love that. And that actually, this is kind of a bit of a tangent, but speaking of the small talk or that ability to engage, I think even adults are feeling that way. I think there's a certain trepidation when it comes to re-entering these big events or even to set foot into a real school for the first time and to be greeted by like a large number of people. It's kind of unusual and it feels a bit alarming for some people. Yes. And so do you have any advice for educators navigating parents who are kind of re-entering society in many respects or or even they're managing their own anxieties around suddenly be a, being around so many people? Oh, I think the first thing is uh, there was a phenomenal piece of research years back that I loved. It was a guy named Brookover, and he was trying to figure out how do educators and parents become partners? And he discovered that the big thing is Parents, particularly if they've got struggling kids, are already thinking that they can't make a difference and they need to feel welcomed and invited by us because they don't want to feel like, oh my gosh, I'm going to that conference again. I'm going to hear all that bad stuff. So maybe it's starting on a whole new reboot of come on in. We're glad you're here. Uh, And maybe it's starting with an email exchange to each one or simple little strategies. Look, we're going to be doing, hopefully, teaching so many coping strategies. But maybe another thing that you may want to do is today's parents are app friendly. So get yourself a Twitter account and maybe it's just parents and your students, but that's all that's allowed or your own website, the simplest one you can imagine. But every time you teach a skill, same one all month long, video it, then post it so that your kids are required to teach the parents the skill or send home a flash drive. The best thing I saw was an Oakland school who had really anxious kids that every child CDC is telling us anxiety is going up. They don't know how to keep a lid on it. So when you get to Thrivers chapter three, that's self-control. You got to help kids figure out how to put the brake on impulses. There's Mm -hmm. about 30 ideas in there, but the simplest one is a slow, deep breath. Navy SEALs taught that to me, and that's how they get through real adversity. I said, well, how do you do it then? Real simple. You better teach it to kids. The soon as we feel the stress, we start knowing each other's stress. And we start pointing out, you're getting stressed because this <laughs> is what you're doing. Then we tell ourselves, chill out or relax inside our head, or we remind each other. And then we do a one-two breath because that's the fastest way to chill. From deep in your tummy, like you're riding up an elevator, one breath up, 
Hold it. Keep focusing on the breath. And of course, your mind is going to wonder, but that's okay. Keep telling yourself to get back to it and then slowly let it out. Mm. Exhale needs to be twice as long as the inhale. Here's what you could do with parents right before that first conference. If you don't have that on your website, while you're teaching the parent or working with the parent, have each parent bring their kid for the first conference. Mm. And then right outside the door, the child is doing the making a, maybe it's a little poster. Look, mommy, we're lurking one plus two. When you've got the construction paper, you've got the poster already. The child is making it with mom. They've got to sit there for 10 minutes anyway. And then when they come in, hi, how are you? I'm so glad you're here. Oh, thank you for teaching your mom and dad. <laughs> now let's, let's work on that one more time. We need to reinforce it because one of the things about these coping skills we're discovering, American kids are lacking them. Mm-hmm. We are teaching them but we may not be teaching them enough. So there's transfer. So the right. kid can do it without us. Right. So they're doing it at the water fountain. They're doing it on the playground. They're doing it on the bus. And oh my gosh, how cool that is. They're doing it at home. Right, 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 right. And I think that is such an important thing. Often, especially earlier in my career, I've been teaching for about 13, 13 years or so in primary. And Aww. one of the things that I have learned more recently in my career is to slow it down because we want, I mean, there is a lot flying at us at all times and we need to be able to just go, no, what is important and what do we want the kids to come out with on the other end? And if we're just scratching the surface all the way along, then we're really not getting to a place where, like you said, they're transferring the skill without you. So that is such an important reminder. I just, I, I love that you say that. Well, you know, here's another little point that's so simple. All of the research is telling us that watch out, your kid's focusing ability is going to be a little bit short as ours. Mm. So what do they need? They can't focus as long, but you can be doing brain breaks throughout yes. the day. What do you do for a brain break? Well, one of them could be all together now, eyes up, let's practice one, two. And it may be nothing more than practicing slow, deep breathing, like five times a day, a minute a day. And pretty soon what happens is they get it. Another wonderful teacher said what she does is each day, because she's so worried about the last there's seven habits of thrivers. And the last one is optimism. How do you create optimism and hope in a dismal world where kids have been seeing a daily death count every day? What she does is she says every week, I'm going to help my kids learn one new, just little proverb about hope and optimism. No big thing, but it's just going to be a, just a proverb. She's going to write it on a piece of chart paper. I said, how are you going to learn? How are they going to learn it? She's real simple. Every day we're going to do brain breaks. We're going to do about five times a day all together now. And they're going to repeat the poem. They're going to do the same poem and the same proverb all day long, every day, five Mm -hmm. seconds a day, 10 seconds a day. By the end of the week, most kids have memorized it. Her goal is by the end of the year, choose one or two that work for you. And that's going to be your mantra for life. Oh my gosh. Okay. That is so good. That is so good. And it's so simple. I think this is the thing is we get caught in this sort of this cycle of having to find the bigger, better deal, the, you know, most Pinterestable activity or whatever. And really it's about just drilling down to what's most important. I had a drama teacher in high school who, you know, from grade eight to 12 was the most influential teacher. And he really didn't do, I mean, the content, I don't really remember, but the the proverbs, the mantras that he threw out every yes. day, he just repeated and they are still in my head. 
to yeah. this day. It's unbelievable. You know, he'd, he'd say things like do it and forget about it. So like, let's not look at the outcome. Let's do the process, you know, or he, he those sorts of things. And so it's so true. And I think on some level, on a subconscious level that really enters into the brain. So I just, I love that. I think that's such a wonderful strategy. What about for, I just want to come back to that whole impulsivity thing. Mm-hmm. Um, what about those kids that struggle with the pathologized sort of aspects of, you know, um, that impulse control. So for example, they have ADHD or yes. they have some things that, yes. that their brains have sort of a predisposition to, it yes. can be hard for them. So how yeah. do you find that the strategies are different for those children or is it, is it the same, but you just do it more? How, how do you suggest sort of, well, you're that? talking to a, I started out as a special ed teacher. 101. Mm-hmm. Everything I learned about everything I'm talking about, I learned from kids. And I learned that, hey, I can look at the best evidence-based stuff, but I got to scaffold it based on what that kid needs. The first thing I'd suggest is get a handle on who those struggling kids are that are going to be very quick to become, we do know, more irritable, very <laughs> quick and go from, you know, gray to black and then meltdown. Step one is tune into them. Tune into them and do a few things. First is have a one-on-one with them and let them know that you know that they're struggling. And maybe there's a signal that you can come up with. I used to have an orange pen that I gave a couple of kids. And that orange pen, nobody knew that when that orange pen went on top of their desk, it was their signal to me is they need to get (laughs) to time out quick or something. I always had a calm down corner in my room. There was nothing more than it wasn't time out. It was I need some time out, go to it. It was just books there. Mm -hmm. I also would tune into not all the kids, but the couple that were, I knew I was on my, oh my gosh, Michelle, get your act together and have a plan in place. Mm -hmm. But I'd figure out what their triggers are. Mm -hmm. I'd figure out when they were almost at the breaking point or was there a certain time? Mm -hmm. And then I'd have something in place for them, including the teacher next door who became my best friend. The best thing that we had was a white stapler. Each of us had them, and we did this legitimately, but we had a pack that if the kid came in with carrying a white staple, stapler, it meant, yeah, I need some white staple for more staples. But in reality, it meant, could you please take him for about <laughs> three minutes? I really need to get my act together here. He's having some tough times. He just needs to move. And mm-hmm. I'm telling you, by the time he got back to my classroom, he was always calmer because the teacher was calmer and she was doing well. She breathed slowly. Life was great. Wow. I love that strategy. I've seen also the folder, you know, like the, the special purple folder where you're like Johnny or, or, you know, Sally, yeah. will you go take this down to Mrs. Exactly. X? And yeah. It's a helpful thing. I think it's helpful for everybody. It's a great strategy. And also for, for educators to understand, like we can take a break. It's okay to be human and to get to that point ourselves where we're like, okay, <laughs> I need a little break. And, and it's uh, there's nothing shameful about that. And I think having that team approach and the clear communication around it ahead of time, like ahead of the year, because we always have somebody, there's always a handful of kids that, that need that. Right. So why not start the year off going, okay, if there is a scenario like this, why don't we do it this way? I just think that's so great. Um, talk to me a little bit about like going back to your book unselfie, just to switch gears a little bit. You, you talk about this sort of almost like there's this new child that, that has, I think you said 30% or no, 40% less empathy now than they would have had years ago. And this sort of like, almost like narcissistic personality, what, what do you think that that stems from? And 
what can we do about it? Well, first I wrote on selfie because I was looking at that University of Minnesota and, my, and Michigan was doing that study, uh, Sarah Conrath, and she was looking at thousands of incoming college freshmen over the last 30 years, whether or not you know it, there is a little narcissism test that's been given to hundreds and hundreds of diverse kids from coast to coast. What did she know? Here's the first clue to your question. She began to see the biggest drop started around the year 2000. So now we go, what the heck happened around the year 2000? Well, the smartphone came in. That's mm -hmm. one. We know that emotional literacy is the gateway to empathy. You can't feel with another person unless you can go, he looks sad or she looks frustrated or he sounds upset. But all of the kids that I've been interviewing say they're having a tough time reading each other. Because yeah. if you look at a screen or you look down. Second of all, we became test obsessed. And what we began to do, said Harvard, was put so much emphasis at home on what you get as opposed to what kind thing did you do that Harvard studies actually found that only 20% of American kids thought their parents thought that kindness mattered. Was that right. true? And no, because they asked the parents and the parents go, well, of course it matters. <laughs> but the messages weren't getting through to the kid. Right. Third, I mean, you notice this isn't one yeah. thing. Third, look at adults. They're behaving very badly. One of the best ways you learn empathy is by watching somebody do it right. Fourth is you need experiences. You need experiences to know, oh my gosh, I'm a kind person. But you don't collect 50,000 coins and send them to Biafra to learn empathy. You do if you have abstract empathy. But you start with what every kid told me. By giving the overcoat to the guy, oh my gosh, you can't believe the look in his eye when he got the overcoat. I just had to go keep giving more overcoats mm -hmm. out. It was that face-to-face -face interaction that did it. So I think there's a breakdown in empathy. Parents also, in all fairness, don't realize that it can be nurtured, that our children mm -hmm. are hardwired for it. But it because we haven't been putting it onto our parenting agenda, it's starting to go down. Uh -huh. What can you do about it? A lot. First, we teachers, we do the best thing best and realize literary fiction. Mm. We know that if we read literary fiction in book clubs with each other, our own own empathy goes up, says Richard Davidson. Mm. So Charlotte's Web. Why is Wonder one of the most popular books of all time with kids right mm. now? Why do middle school kids keep telling me you got to keep making sure that we read The Outsiders? Why? Mm -hmm. Because it makes you understand what it feels like to be excluded, what it feels like. So mm -hmm. first is make sure that your books are diverse. They're opening up possibilities to kids. There's rich with emotions. Number two, talk feelings. When you walk into the classroom, particularly in today's pandemic world, maybe the first thing everybody does is a feeling checkup. And it can be nothing more than I'm feeling thumbs up or, hey, it's a thumbs down. Or it's a number scale, quiet. On a scale of zero to seven, zero is you're a cloud, you're so relaxed, you could be asleep. Seven is you're a volcano about ready to explode. Everybody thumbs up, fingers up. How do you feel right now? Mm -hmm. um, in my own classroom, I did special ed 101, but I mean, I couldn't figure out how I was going to read the kids. And that was the only way I was going to reach them. And I made the ridiculous cardboard feeling thermometer <laughs> absolutely by fluke and put up just paper clips for each kid's name, mine, why not? And then a few feelings that I'd pasted from, you know, a magazine. And I asked each kid when they came in every day, let us know how you're feeling. It took quite a while for them to feel safe to do that. Mm -hmm. And then one day, I'll never forget it. I walked in and all the kids were just gathered around Aaron. I said, what's going on? And they all looked down and said, 
he's having a really long day. Look, Ms. Barbara, look at He's having a bad day. We got to make him feel better. And I went, oh my mm. gosh, a cardboard feeling thermometer. Yeah. <laughs> but it's because I was doing it every single day. Yeah. So feelings are critical. Service projects are mm -hmm. critical. Film clips can be critical. How would you feel if that happened to you? Question. Mm -hmm. What would you need in order to feel better? Mm -hmm. Oh my gosh, here's another one. Middle school principal. She was going nuts with two boys, just nuts until finally nothing was working until she said, okay, here's a piece of paper for you. Here's a piece of paper for you. You go write what you think he's going to say, and you go write what you think he's going to say. And then we'll put the two together and see what happens. And both kids go, I never thought of it like that. <laughs> so it's That's like awesome. perspective taking can yes. also be an idea. Yes. Oh my goodness. I love that. I love that. And I think, um, you know, with the service projects, actually dedicating a lot of time to that. We do these little kindness ninjas in our class. So we turn Aww. into, you know, we do the little headband and we do the swear in and, and uh, we, you know, we do a whole theme around it and then brainstorm together for every single day that month, you know, something that we can do for the staff or for students or, or even for our community. And it's pretty powerful. They go home and they're really proud. And obviously at primary that works really well, but I think in, in middle school, in high school, uh, the kids get quite a bit of ownership over that as well. There's sort of this pride yes. and a sense of community. And of course, like all the, the hormones that go, you know, the dopamine and the serotonin and the happiness hormones that, that contribute to that is, is pretty powerful. Oh, and it's, it is extremely powerful on another level. That's science because yeah. <laughs> what we do know is that the first trajectory to empathy could be, how does he feel and looking at right. his face? But the other thing is practicing kindness, right? Because the more you practice it, the first thing that happens is you begin to see the impact of your gesture on the other person and you go, oh my God, he likes it. The mm. second thing that's fascinating is you begin to develop in yourself a mindset that I care. We're yeah. all into the growth mindset, but we also forget that kids act how they feel or mm. see themselves. And you got to start developing a caring mindset. Um, Thrivers has dozens of ideas, but we also know there's three kinds of empathy that I think is critical. When you look at chapter two, read, because so often we think, there's only one kind of empathy. That's the affective A kind. That's mm. the kid who watches Bambi and it's a basket case for a week and a half. You can see it <laughs> on his face because like he's so distressed. He's reading Charlotte's Web and he's sobbing his way through. Affective is one kind. Little kids are more likely to show it. Mm -hmm. But the C kind is cognitive. Mm -hmm. That's the child. Oh, bless them. And I hopefully they're being cloned. He stops a little bit and he tries to understand where the other kid's coming from. It's perspective taking and how the world needs it. You've got to convince kids you don't have to agree with what the person is saying, but try to understand where they're coming from. Mm. Don't judge it. Just listen. And then that's A, affective. C is cognitive. The B is behavior. And the behavior is so if you have the affect and you have the C, what are you going to do about it? What you're really aiming for in empathy is compassion and action. Mm -hmm. And that is so you feel it and you see it or you know it. So what are you going to do about it? And that's where the service comes in, but not because you're going to get a citizen of the month award, yeah. but because it's the right thing from the inside out. And you know, you got to do good right now. Haiti needs kids. Mm -hmm. Haiti needs your, mm -hmm. those, those letters. They need the teddy bears, find the moments in the paper, find the moments and say, what can we do? Because it's actually the best stress reducer there is. 
Yes. And I think you said that latent empathy does no good. I think that was yeah. you, you said that. And I think that fits so well, cause it's true. You can, you can have that heavy on your heart and sort of, you know, circle the drain when you're watching the news. And I think as adults, it's actually, if we teach our kids young, how to deal with that feeling of that latent empathy, where you're like, I don't know what to do. And I just feel like I'm just one yeah. person. And then you can turn that into action and work through it. I mean, that's the key to go- getting through burnout as well. Like when we think about what and, burnout oh, it is, is right? so huge for yeah. staff as well, yeah. but you did something with your kindness project. Mm-hmm. And that is when one of the big stumblers is kids looking at the distressing news or looking at their friend that's been hurt, but then mm-hmm. they don't have a repertoire of what can I do? Right. So if we can, in our homes or in our classrooms, just have one piece of chart paper that's ongoing for the year and you keep adding to it, let's go be kindness lookers or mm-hmm. let's be detectives. Let's find one other thing. Oh my gosh, that was kind. Let's add it to the board. And pretty soon what you have is a list. Mm-hmm. Uh, and some kids begin to go, well, that's something I didn't think about. I can do that. Right. And they also recognize that you value that as an important person in their life, which suddenly becomes because they are so impressionable. We are helping them develop those values that they then see value in that as well. And they start looking at it. And I just, yeah, I think it's so brilliant. Your books are amazing. The work that you do is just so important. I think that piece around educator burnout, which is what I wrote about in my book that's coming out soon is such an important piece as well, because I think it's all the foundational stuff that we're teaching our students, but we need it more than ever as adults. So yes, we do. Before I let you go, what is one sort of message that you'd like to send to educators that maybe they need to know right now as they head into this next year, this really big year during the pandemic, kind of post pandemic, but we're still very much in it. I think it's going to come straight from the CDC. Mm. And that is the next wave that is going to hit us and our children is not going to be another virus. It's going to be a youth mental health crisis. Mm-hmm. Children who have protective buffers, who are, which are coping skills, are more likely to handle adversity. And let's be very clear, teacher, if not COVID, if not the fire, if not a school shooting, who knows what else is coming down the pike? It's an uncertain world. And one thing we got to add to the plate is simple little ways to help kids learn coping strategies and coping buffers. And it could be like we've been talking about, find one, maybe it's a one-two breath or thrivers, look at chapter three and look at 50,000 of them, or look at your ruler approach and your SEL program. What's one strategy that you're going to own and intentionally start weaving in every single day, a minute or two a day until kids own it? That's one protective buffer. The number two is don't you ever forget the power you have as an educator. Mm -hmm. All of the work on science on resilience says one of the things that helps kids become invincible despite the adversity is they had a caring champion in their life who refused Mm. to give up on them. Mm. And that I'd say is an educator. Mm. Thank you. Thank you so, so much, Dr. Michelle Borba. What a pleasure to talk to you today. I feel like my head is so full in a really positive way of all these wonderful ways that I can, I can apply resiliency mindset and, and just help these little guys in my classroom become thrivers. So thank you so, so much for being on the podcast. Thank Thank you. you. (laughs) I want to thank you for the wonderful reviews that you've left for this podcast on iTunes. Your reviews make a big difference in helping other educators find this show. If you think that I'm doing good work here and you'd like others to get inspired and join our 21 day kindness challenge and movement, I'd love it if you would take a minute, head over to iTunes and leave a review. 
Thank you so much. This has been another episode of Kind Sight 101, the podcast. For links to resources mentioned in this episode, visit smallactbigimpact.com and click on our podcast and choose this episode number. Now, I would love to hear from you. What's the biggest insight that you gain from this conversation? Head over to our website, smallactbigimpact.com, leave a comment on our podcast page, or tag and connect with us on social media with the hashtag smallactbigimpact to share your inspiring story of kindness. Can't wait to hear from you.